Welcome to this week's Energy Show. Now, recently, we've had a solar eclipse. I had to work, so I couldn't really get in the car and drive up to the Oregon to see the solar eclipse, but we did see it in our office in Campbell. It was very cool. We had about 75% occlusion of the sun. We watched it through those goofy little glasses, through welding glasses, and also through a reflector telescope that allowed us to see the whole sun and sunspots and cool stuff like that. But anyway, it was kind of a coincidence that last week, the same week, the DOE released their grid reliability report. So I'm reflecting on the real-world performance of the grid in California during the eclipse as kind of as an example of how that is going to be affected in the rest of the, the country and the realities of our local grid here in California and kind of compare that to the resilience of the grid during disasters like Hurricane Harvey and, and what happens when we're retiring coal and nuclear plants. It's interesting because this all kind of weaves together with the DOE's recent DOE grid reliability report, where the DOE is making some recommendations on how we can make sure we have a reliable grid. And I kind of, things aren't really making a lot of sense in my mind with what the DOE says, with what's kind of happening in the real world. So my conclusions in a nutshell is the grid is pretty reliable during expected outages. I mean, heck, the eclipse caused us to lose about 10% of California's power generation, 10% or more from the sun. And the sun didn't completely get knocked out, but it got kicked back a lot. But there wasn't even a hiccup on the grid. Grid ran smoothly. But the local grid... That's the grid in the, in the neighborhoods, around the houses, around the businesses. The local grid continues to be unreliable because it's old infrastructure. We have old transformers, old wires. The wires are too small. A lack of planning for distributed generation. And you know, just when the grid was put in place and, and when PG&E and the utilities built it, they didn't expect people to have electric cars and air conditioning and, and solar. It just didn't kind of, they didn't know about it. And they're not fixing it. And the centralized grid, where we've got centralized power plants, very vulnerable to major disruptions or very vulnerable just to one of those power plants by getting, you know, getting knocked out. So this is a bigger problem now than it was you know, even 10 or 20 years ago because the, the electricity is more important. Blackouts affect our lives much more severely. We're not talking about just the loss of TV and our entertainment systems. I mean, heck, 10 years ago. We had 10, 20 years ago, we had working fireplaces. So if there was a, a storm, you know, we could still get some heat in the house. We had pilot lights in our gas hot water heater. So the gas hot water heaters were still working. As long as we had gas, they could start. And we had gas stoves that, you know, you'd light a match or there was a little clicker in there. We had wireline telephones. So we still had phone service if electricity was out. It still was running. And all of our cars were gas or diesel. Now, we have no heat at all without electricity. Most fireplaces in California are not functional anymore. Sometimes you have natural gas fireplaces. You can't start the, you can't run a gas furnace without the fan going. So you need electricity to run that fan. If you have an you know, old-fashioned oil burner, obviously you need electricity there. A lot of the stoves require electricity to get that spark. The hot water heaters, the new hot water heaters, I'm surprised, they no longer have pilot lights. It's a good idea because you don't use a little bit of gas all the time, but if you don't have electricity, that hot water heater won't start up. We have no phone service at all because it's all based on cellular technology or there are IP-based phones or electronic-based phones. So even though there's a hard wire that goes to the street, <laughs> once you're on the street, there's a, you need electricity to um, transmit those signals. And uh, you know, the electric vehicles that we drive are basically just a worthless heap of aluminum and lithium in your garage if you don't have electricity. I mean, we don't have, a lot of people don't have gas cars. So it's more important than ever that we get the design of the future grid right. We got to kind of plan for this the right way with the, the technologies that are coming out now rather than the old-fashioned ways of doing things. And, you know, it's also important, I'm just kind of looking at this from a, a realistic standpoint, people have to take their own 
actions to ensure they have power. Because I'm no longer confident that the utilities are going to deliver the kind of power we want. They're going to deliver the kind of power they make the most money on. And we can't depend on the Public Utilities Commission or our government to really give us the right kind of power that's farsighted and sufficient and clean and cheap because they're going to be dominated by business interests. And the business interests, big business interests of utilities are more power plants and power delivered. They want to make it. So, you know, we've talked before about the local grid in California, how it's kind of inadequate. You know what? California and a lot of the rest of the country, we have plenty of electricity generation. We have gas plants that are going in relatively inexpensively, and gas is really cheap. We've got lots of solar generation, super, super cheap. The transmission systems continue to get upgraded. We're, we're running more high-voltage lines around the country, crisscrossing from point to point, so that we can move power around. That's great. What we're kind of missing is the distribution system over utility lines from these these high voltage lines to the homes and businesses. That distribution system's expensive, old, vulnerable to problems like overloading or, or storms. And most importantly, as we mentioned, it doesn't doesn't reflect what we use um, in modern electricity usage. It doesn't reflect the the fact that because of warmer climate and people moving into places that are hotter, they have air conditioning, they have electric vehicles, they have solar, they want to put in battery storage. The distribution system is just not designed for that. So the utilities kind of have blinders about that. So let's take a look at some recent events and see how the local grid has fared during these recent events. Now, you know, I mentioned the eclipse. That's kind of cool. But the California grid operators had over a year to plan for the fact that there was going to be an eclipse in California. So they knew what was going to happen. They knew exactly how much solar generation would drop off. Now, it's not only the solar generation that's centrally generated by the utilities, but a lot of customers also had a dip in solar generation. I mean, we were just watching the solar system in our office and the one at my house and, and the one of our customers. Everybody dropped out around 10 o'clock. It was a lot. So not only did the utilities lose their generating capacity, but the homes needed more power because their own self-generation was less. But because of this eclipse, the grid planners knew exactly how much solar generation would drop off and they knew exactly when it would drop off and they knew exactly when it would come back. So it was really easy to plan for. Grid operators do great at these predictable events. We have the, the California independent system operator and they're kind of like looking at all the power that's going in and out and they can kind of plan for it. They do a great job. Every night they know that this, you know, they're going to lose the solar generation. They're going to have to run different plants. They're going to have to buy power. They can plan for cloudy weather. They can plan for really, really hot weather. When they see heat waves coming, they know that they're going to need to get more power on, on hot afternoons. They know that there's coastal fog every morning. They know about seasonal events, more power in the, in the summer than in the winter. So they're planning for that. Now, in this eclipse, California lost about 3,000 megawatts of solar generation, of utility generation during the eclipse. They probably lost a few thousand megawatts of of customer generation too. That's out of the total power generation that was about 30,000 megawatts. Once again, not including DG solar, rooftop solar. So what made up the difference? I mean, why why was everybody happy? Why did the grid just keep chugging along? Well, the reason is, that we have a lot of natural gas generators that can ramp up fairly fast. These these generators are designed to handle the neck of this thing called the duck curve that happens in the afternoon when there's solar kind of fades away and then people come home from work and they want to use a lot of power. They, 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 there's a ramp up in power generation that the state needs and that was easy to deploy during this eclipse. And also, it, it was easy for the generators, the, the op system operators, to purchase more power from out of state. If they, it was easy for them to say, hey, we better open up some spillways on some dams and get some, some more hydropower there. They could even have the option of getting power 
from battery storage systems. Now, economics played a huge factor in this because the electricity prices change with periods of high demand. So what was happening is before the eclipse, power was 25 cents a megawatt hour. That's two and a half cents a kilowatt hour. That's how much utilities pay to buy power when there's plenty, two and a half cents. But when the eclipse hit, the price of power was higher, about a nickel a megawatt hour, five cents a kilowatt hour, and it gets even higher when when that happens. So generators all over the country were connected to the California grid and say, hey, we're going to sell power when these prices are high. But what happens to the grid when there's a disaster, when there's a flood, a storm, an earthquake? Well, this week we've got Hurricane Harvey causing tragic flooding in Texas. I mean, when we're talking about this, it just keeps getting worse and worse. So there's a huge disaster there. How does the electricity grid fare in that kind of emergency? Well, electricity doesn't work too well when the wires are underwater. These large-scale power plants are very vulnerable to damage. You can put some dikes around them, but you know when there's a lot of water, those dikes are going to flood. You know, We've seen that happen again and again. There's damage that happens to the plant itself. It's going to take a while to bring it back online. I mean, it could take you know months. There's damage to the fuel supply. Natural gas is pretty robust, but coal gets interrupted. There's damage to the transmission infrastructure, those wires that are outside of the plant. Obviously, you don't want to get the nuclear plants wet. Just ask the people in Fukushima. So these central plants are, are great for inexpensively generating power in one place, but they're not that reliable. So, you know, Hurricane Harvey and other storms and surprise events that we've had in the past, I mean, think about similar problems like Tropical Storm Sandy on the East Coast or Katrina in, in New Orleans. These things really are a problem. When they go out, you know, everybody's in trouble. So it's not the best model for the future reliability of the grid. Okay, now... Let's talk a bit about solar for your home or your business. At Cinnamon Solar, we've been installing rooftop solar systems in Silicon Valley since 2001. We have thousands of happy customers. So check out our website or check out our five-star reviews on Yelp. Not only do we design and install systems, but we've also been taking care of solar customers for over 15 years. So if you have a solar power system and it needs maintenance, give us a call. And to make sure your job is done to our high-quality standards, our installers are trained employees of Cinnamon Solar, not subcontractors. So they're not going to rush to get your job done. They're going to install it the right way so it's going to last for 25 years or more. So if you're interested in a rooftop solar power system for your home or business, or if you're thinking about some of the new battery storage products that provide power during an emergency backup power, give us a call at 408-883-7000. Better yet, if you want to see these things, if you want to see battery storage systems, see solar panels, see how they're attached to the roof, join us at our next free solar and battery storage seminar in Campbell on September 9th. You can register at our website at cinnamonsolar.com. And when we get back, we'll talk about both government solutions and practical solutions, notice I'm making a distinction there, to these grid reliability problems. Now, here's the upshot about this grid reliability. First, I gotta—I really have to hand it to the people who work at utilities. They're, they generally do a very good job of keeping the lights on. The, the utility workers are very, very hardworking. But from a business standpoint, they're, they're, they're publicly owned utilities. They're trying to make a profit. They're not forward thinking about what's going to be best for the grid. They're forward thinking about what's going to be best for their financial statements over the next you know, quarter and, and year. As a result, they don't like distributed generation. They don't want people to put solar or battery storage in on their house. They don't like these things called energy efficiency or behind the meter resources because that means they're going to sell less power and they're, they're going to need to build fewer power plants. So they fight these technologies, battery storage, energy efficiency, solar power, because it reduces their profits, even though, you know, lots and lots of friends at utilities. And even though these technologies increase the grid's reliability and lower costs, because it's going to lower their profits and they don't like it. Okay.
So here's the reality. Utility generation is generally really, really good, except during disasters and also except from a standpoint of low cost. The transmission system's pretty good. It's the local grids that are really vulnerable. That's where we're seeing most of the problems. I mean, yeah, once in a while you, you, there's a disaster that kind of knocks out power in a whole area, but it's the local blackouts that you hear about. And, you know, you don't get a lot of press coverage on it because it's just like maybe 20 people in a neighborhood or maybe four businesses that are affected. And it's, it's not news, but you know, businesses and homes are out of power. So it's becoming really apparent to me because these local grids are vulnerable, they're not really robust, they're not equipped to handle the current usage and generation of electricity, that people need to take more control of their electricity. I mean, I I used to say the grid was pretty reliable, but not anymore. Electricity is also an essential resource. So let's take a look at what the DOE thinks and what the DOE's recommendations were on this grid reliability study. Now, The Department of Energy Secretary Rick Perry wanted to put this study in place to justify the Trump administration's passion for coal and nuclear. They also wanted to, you know, let's do a study that avoids discussion of climate change, avoids discussion of renewables and new technologies, and hammers on regulations and and tax policies that are, and and environmental regulations that are bad for coal and nuclear. That was kind of how the goal of this study was phrased. So Secretary Perry pretty much got what he wanted in the study in terms of recommendations. But the study did note that the, some of the facts, and some of the facts are that coal and nuclear plant retirements are mostly because of economics, because of cheap natural gas, not because of regulations. It's just there's a better fuel, and we'll talk about more about that in a minute. So what did the study recommend to improve grid reliability? Well, here's kind of where there's a big disconnect. The study emphasizes old solutions like coal and nuclear. Now, you know, kind of like the background, you're thinking about the, the goal of this study, If the goal of the study was to justify coal and nuclear, and coal and nuclear are no longer economically feasible from a utility standpoint, in other words, utilities don't want to invest in coal and nuclear because natural gas and solar is cheaper, Perry framed the study in such a way saying, hey, let's talk about reliability issues. Coal and nuclear are old technologies, but they're fairly reliable. But it didn't consider modern solutions like wind and solar and storage and even fast-starting natural gas turbines. So they're kind of just saying, hey, the old way of doing things was fine. We could run nuclear and coal as on a base load. That just works. Not looking at how effective the modern solutions are. Okay. So we talk a lot about base load power, and, and the way that's defined is that's power that's kind of always there when we need it at night. So coal and nuclear are often used as the major base load generators. That's what's kind of running 24-7. And nuclear really doesn't like to turn on and off. Coal's not as good at that. But, you know, natural gas works really well for base load, too. The other advantage of natural gas is these turbines can spin up and spin down a lot more effectively to handle surges or or times when you need power. So that's, natural gas is probably going to be our dominant source of baseload. The problem, obviously, we talked about this, about coal and nuclear, is it's too expensive and it's polluting. We already talked about coal, way too expensive compared to natural gas. Even if the coal regulations are relaxed by Trump, and they are getting relaxed, it's very likely that future political administrations. Our next president is going to say, hey, let's go back to these old regulations. We don't want to live in this, you know, stinky polluted area. We got a global warming problem. Now, you know, the global warming issues are kind of getting put aside with this administration. So the reality is these regulations could be put back in place again. And we've already seen that with the corporate average fuel economy standards that, you know, they're 
there was regulations put in place by one administration, and then the regulations are relaxed, and then the regulations are increased, and then they're relaxed, and we kind of go back and forth, Democrat, Republican. These policies change, but the economics don't change. So the economics of coal from a utility standpoint, isn't going to get any better anytime soon. Natural gas is cheap. Utilities are not investing in coal plants. Now, let's talk about nuclear. It's kind of the same issue. It's almost inconceivable that utilities would plan for new nukes. I mean, just this week, there's another, um, one of the other remaining nuclear plants is under construction. They're, they're basically canceling construction. Westinghouse Nuclear, zoned by Toshiba, they went bankrupt. And they had kind of the new design, the Westinghouse 1000 reactor, and that was going to save the nuclear power industry because it could be installed really efficiently and quickly and, and uh, much more um, inexpensively. And it didn't work out that way. Um, way, way, way too expensive and takes too many years to build a nuclear plant, like 20 years. Who wants to wait for that? We can build you know, solar plants in a year. We can put in a natural gas plant in two years. We can't wait 20 years to put in a nuclear plant. So nuclear is dead as a doornail. Too expensive to build, too expensive to operate. They're expensive to run and ridiculously expensive 50 years later to decommission them because you got to really deal with all that nuclear waste. So base, for baseload power, Instead of coal and nuclear, utilities have basically said, hey, natural gas is fine. That's what we use in California. We shut down our last nuclear reactor and we're replacing it with, with some natural gas and with a lot of solar. And natural gas, although it still contributes to global warming, it is relatively clean compared to coal. And, you know, I, I, I'd love to see us not use natural gas, but the reality is we're going to need it for a long time. And as former Secretary of the DOE, Ernie Money said, it's a good bridge to renewables. So we're going to stay on that bridge because we have no alternative other than coal and, and nuclear. So as an energy geek, I kind of look at what the DOE's recommendations are, and they're basically not going to achieve our goals. Coal and nuclear are not going to give us reliable power because it's centralized. It's not going to be inexpensive, and it's not going to be clean. So we have much better solutions in terms of a more distributed, independent grid. And this is where these new technologies like wind and solar and storage come into play. We can generate and store this local power effectively. Heck, we're doing it at our office at Cinnamon Solar. You can do it in your home. Businesses are putting in these, these storage systems and solar systems. And, you know, in the past, the only way to do it was big central power plants and dams. But now we have new technologies that work locally, and we have technologies that can move this local power around on the grid more efficiently. There's no doubt in my mind that it's going to be a network of smaller grids and even microgrids. These are like, you know, maybe little tiny, you know, little neighborhoods that are going to be more resilient and cheaper. It's just kind of like what happened with the computer revolution. We went from centralized data processing and, and mainframes, and now we've got... PCs and, you know, we don't even have PCs. People have phones and, and tablets. And it works just as effectively and, and it, it's cheaper, it's more efficient than centralized data processing. And if there's some kind of local disaster, microgrids or local grids are going to operate more efficiently. And you kind of take it to the logical extreme and say, you know, what if you have solar and battery storage in your business or your house, you've got your own microgrid. You can continue to stay in business. You can continue to keep your fridge cold and, 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 and your beer cold and your house warm if you have that storage system. So the old problems we had with solar, which is, well, gets dark every night, um, there's new solutions. It's wind, it's storage, and it's hydroelectricity, and it's supported by fast-ramping natural gas plants so that we can ramp up those natural gas plants if the cloud goes over the sun. Um, we have a new solar problem, and that's too much peak generation 
um, and not enough afternoon power. And this is the whole issue with the duck curve. But there's new solutions to that problem of too much free, cheap solar. Battery storage and natural gas peaker plants are working great. They work great during the eclipse. They work great every single day. These peaker plants are natural gas fire plants that are smaller, that can ramp up really fast. And, and we're also getting good to project the future problems. The, the forecasters are fairly good at the weather. The power planners are good at looking ahead at the weather. All right, what can you do from a business or a homeowner standpoint? Well, first, uh, you know, I'm going to talk about the policy side of it. Encourage your, your legislators, your policymakers to make better electric grid decisions. Don't, don't just kind of go along with what the utility wants, which is going to be consistent with a profit motive. Look at what's going to make more sense over the long term that's going to be cheaper. Because, heck, I mean, just personally, Personally, in our lives directly, I had two, I live in Silicon Valley in the suburbs, two extended blackouts this year, and I expect more. And it's probably happened to you too. So what you have to do is you can also take more control of your electricity supply. This electricity is essential now. Yes, rooftop solar is great in terms of cheap local power, six cents instead of 20 or 40 cents for your local utility. But you can also plan for systems that are going to provide backup power. Maybe you don't buy it now, but maybe you're going to put in a backup power system in a year or two. You design it the right way. Those things are just going to get more and more cost effective. And then you're going to have power when you want it and when you need it, when the utility kind of lets you down. Now, one solution is a generator. And, you know, it's a few thousand dollars. And it's noisy. It's messy. But it's relatively cheap. And I've had one for 20 years. And, and it you know, works great. Kind of inconvenient. I had to teach my wife how to start it. But the best solution now is solar coupled with battery storage. And I'm very impressed with the new technology that's out there. These things are now working. They're cost effective. And there's rebates in California for these backup power solutions using battery storage. And there's no doubt in my mind that as buildings, as homes and businesses have more and more of these storage systems, this is going to be the best solution for the grid. So there's good solutions that you can put in place in terms of solar and battery storage, and they're cost-effective now, and they're only going to make more and more economic and environmental sense. Okay, that's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you miss any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinnamonsolar.com and listen to the podcast.